Welcome to season three of the Change the World podcast. I'm your host, Sivya Kohn. As CEO of 14 Minds, a marketing agency that works exclusively with Jewish nonprofits, I am a firsthand witness to the incredible physical, spiritual, and emotional services these organizations provide to our community. However, I also see the many challenges they face along the way. This season, I'll be speaking to incredible nonprofit leaders who haven't let any obstacles get in the way of their mission to change the world. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Today, I have with me Dr. Marcy Forda, who specializes in eating disorder treatment and prevention in the Orthodox Jewish community. She's also the founder and director of Atzmi. And today, we're going to talk about something that's been on my mind for a really, really long time. So I'm looking forward to getting into it. But before I do that, Dr. Forda, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got into the nonprofit world? Sure. Just to clarify, I don't treat eating disorders. I really do education, awareness, and prevention of eating disorders. And I'm the founder and director of OSME, which is an organization that creates curriculum for our girls to head off eating disorders, but also to increase self-compassion, emotion regulation, priorities, boundaries, healthy relationships, things like that. So we have three times that we do it. We also provide seminars to the parents and to the teachers as well. So I guess a little bit about my background is, is I had a uh, clothing store here in Michigan, a SNEAS clothing store for just over 15 years, I guess I would say. And before I sold it for personal reasons, but what kind of stuck with me about that was that all the girls kind of changing, young girls to young ladies, they're changing bodies, were very stressful and frustrating for them to dress their bodies, to, you know, sizing of the clothing that they wore. And also young mothers, uh, a lot of women who apologized, you know, they had just had a baby, they weren't back to their previous shape and weight, a lot of concerns around body. So when I left, uh, when I sold the store and I took a little bit of time, um, I, I really, the message kept coming back up in my mind and resonating with me. And I kind of wanted to approach it as I have a business background from a business perspective. So I went back to school to get a doctorate in education so that I can uh, study this. So basically, that's why I created this program to, I, I really wanted to help people with their body image. Being someone who struggled with eating disorder issues as a teen, I really intimately knew the struggle. So that's kind of what I do. As far as the nonprofit, when I started to create this curriculum for Otsme, and I realized, you know, that I wanted to be able to provide it to the schools at limited or no cost, um, I needed this nonprofit kind of set up. And so that's how I got into the nonprofit world. Wow. I mean, that's an amazing background story. I always love hearing how people evolved into what they're doing. And that's, that's pretty incredible. So I, you, you mentioned very briefly, if you can tell me a little bit more in depth about how the organization helps with these particular challenges. Great question. So what I did was I spent five years getting my doctorate, talking about risk factors in the Jewish Orthodox community. I also went to schools. I, I trained in all the eating disorder prevention programs that are out there, the secular programs. And I understood kind of what parts of it work and don't, what are appropriate and not appropriate. And so I kind of amalgamated that, but I base everything on Torah and Hashkafa. I want people to, we have beautiful things that we can share and use and, you know, kind of cultivate from our own history. So everything is based on Torah and Hashkafa, and it's also based on empirical scientific 
research on how eating disorders are prevented. So I've kind of put that together. We have graduate students that are studying our program. They're doing the before and afters and the six-month study down the road. I have researchers who are going to write it up. Um, we want it to really be empirically proven to work, but at the same time, I want it to be created with the from girl in mind. So are you working with girls now directly or is this more of a long-term approach? I work with the schools. I've done it. Camps also have had an interest in it. So we, we do it in the schools, actually. It's a four, we do it at eighth grade, 10th grade, and 12th grade. And it's a four session workshop in each of those grades. So it's not so difficult or arduous for the schools to kind of implement. And, and we also, like I said, to do that parent program because they're kind of giving girls a new way and perception and thinking about things. And I want their moms to understand where body image comes from and talk about some of those difficult conversations with diet culture and appearance ideal and weight stigma. Um, and that's why it's also important to deal with the teachers as well. So we kind of approach it in those grade levels, but I have a lot of, I just came back from the Torah Masora convention. There were a lot of young girls who were babysitters who came up to the booth who asked if I would just even do it with them online, even if their school didn't, you know, put it in the school curriculum. Um, so I, it really does resonate with the girls. Wow. So that really leads me into the topic I kind of wanted to bring up because you're dealing with something that, I mean, many nonprofits that I've spoken to deal with this, but you're specifically dealing with a topic that I think there's a lot of shame and a lot of stigma that surround it. I think particularly this one in the Orthodox community, when it comes to, you know, everyone has this fear of Shadokim, like if this gets out, if people know, have you encountered any of that sort of shame and stigma as deterrence to people either reaching out for making the most of your program um, or anything along those lines? I mean, there's definitely, you know, a lot of mental health shame and stigma in our communities. However, I do think we're doing better. I, I, I definitely think that we're doing better. But really, studies have shown that 60% of from mental health providers feel that stigma is, is a significant deterrent in people getting the help that they need for their mental health condition. And 80% of those believe it's because of the stigma that we have to mental health. Happens to be eating disorders are more stigmatized than other mental health issues. So it is a struggle. A lot of the parents that I speak with, kind of with my other hat, not within the organization of ATSMI, really don't want to share this with anybody else. It really isn't, you know, it's kind of considered their fault, but the reality is it's an extremely genetic disease. They're finding also that not only is it genetic, it has to do a lot with the gut microbiome and other things. So it's not really a matter of fault or not, no fault. It's like, how do we best support this child? And sometimes it is very difficult. They don't want to share. It, it's been very hard to publicize it and talk about it. But anyone that I talk to about Asmi's mission literally tells me they had a friend, you know, who passed away from it, or they have a family member who's struggling, or they know of this, or their own daughter, or their own child. I can't tell you how anyone I've talked to has a story to tell me. Um, and the Jewish community's statistics are that we are two times more likely than the general public to have an eating disorder. So that means up to wow. 25% of our women will be diagnosed with an eating disorder in their lifetime. Wow, I've never heard that. That's, that's frightening. Yes, it really is. So prevention, I find... Prevention is never as important maybe as other things because if something happens, obviously you have to deal with it. Sometimes they think it'll never happen if we don't talk about it or yeah. think about it. So there's stigma, there's shame, you know, around it definitely. So I definitely see what you're saying that as a community, we've come a long way from where we were in terms of destigmatizing and, and bringing conversations out in the open, but it definitely seems like there's still a way to go. Do you have any ideas or suggestions, anything you've tried about what we can possibly do to get further along than we are now? 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. There's a, there's just a lot of stigma. People will speak to you one-on-one and they'll definitely ask for your help and want to do what's best for their child. I do feel that that's a, the great first step is that there is more recognition, you know, of, of issues. And so people really are trying to raise awareness about it, but they, they don't kind of want to make it about their situation or their family or their struggle. And I really, and I love to even start another nonprofit just to kind of help people. A lot of people say, you know, when their child is diagnosed with a mental health disorder, whether it's an eating disorder or depression or any other disorder, they feel very alone. They don't really have information about good providers, where they should go, what's a good place to start, what they can expect, the role of the parent, especially in eating disorder recovery, you know, understanding what their role is. I don't know. I mean, the reality is if we don't talk about it more, if we, if it's, we're not able to share it more then yes. I mean, it's, it is going to continue to be a struggle for sure. And, and also the struggle is that sometimes people feel that if they have to see a provider who isn't a from therapist, that their daughter or child will be receiving messages that they don't want them to get or that they'll be undermining their religious beliefs or practices. And I think it's pretty much an unfounded fear. I really have never heard of that happening, Uh, especially in eating disorders. It's really important to go to a provider who knows what they're doing, who's been trained and has experience. You know, again, I think it's, that's why I'm in education, awareness, prevention. You have to keep educating people and making them more aware and telling them, especially when you realize how genetic some of these disorders are, it's almost like Crohn's or diabetes or something else where it's like, it's not shameful. It's just your genetic predisposition and something kind of triggered the onset of whatever this is. So that's the most important part. I think for fundraising or for publicizing for an organization, keeping great records about how many people you've helped and maybe them allowing you to share their stories, even if you can't do it without their names or if they write something and just use their initials, it's not as effective but it is something that can be used for sure. That's I've I've found to be the biggest help is kind of keeping those numbers really well documented. Uh, How many people you've touched? What is the percentage success? What is this? That's been helpful. So it's interesting you say that. It it does feel like as a community, we're self-inflicting so much upon ourselves in, in on two sides of the spectrum, because on one end you have this stigma that, you know, we can't get past it. Everybody wants to keep everything super private. And because of that, people may not seek help because they're, you know, afraid of what might people might think or hear or do differently. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have these organizations that are trying so hard to help from a prevention standpoint, from an intervention standpoint, and they're being, they're, they're kind of operating with their hands tied behind their back because they're being asked to go out there and get support, but they have to be so vague, right? We can't, you know, divulge the, you know, the confidentiality of the people that we're helping is our utmost prayer. I mean, I've heard this so many times. I just read an article in one of the Jewish magazines about a nonprofit leader who said, you know, he, he doesn't care what the marketing companies tell him, you know, he's not going to divulge the, the stories of the people he works with. So the nonprofits really have the struggle. It's like, it's like marketing a product, but I won't let you see the product. Like you have to pay for it, but you don't know what you're paying for. So I mean, do you think that there's anything wrong with a nonprofit reaching out to the people that they're helping? Let's say, I mean, I, I'm assuming we, we're talking about the people who are on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to reach out to someone mid-struggle, obviously, but someone who's on the other side, they've come out, they appreciate so much what the organization does, and they probably want to help. Is there something wrong to reach out and say, we really need people to tell their stories in order to get more support, to do more of this kind of work? Is this something you'd be willing to do? 
I definitely think if your organization has helped somebody significantly in that way and their life has improved because of it and their kids or loved ones have have benefited in some way, that it's, I I actually think sometimes people don't think of it, but I, I don't think once they're past it and on the other end, depending on how severe it was and how personal um, that they will be in a position where they'll they'll want to say no. I, I think people generally, genuinely want to help other people, especially once they're on the other end of it and they feel like they had it under control and they know that other people can benefit because they remember what they went through. I have a, you know, a lot of guest speakers when I do support groups and stuff, parent groups. I, I, I don't really work with the girls, but because it's, you have to be so careful, you can't talk to the girls about eating disorders. But when you have a parent who went through this or another person who struggled and kind of they tell their story that is the most appreciative you know people in those groups are the most appreciative of those meetings that we have more so than other inform informational kinds of meetings it resonates with them and it kind of reinforces the fact that they're struggling too and that there is that up and down and that we're all kind of coming from the same place and even though logically these are things that we know i just think that you give people more credit because when they're in the throes of a mental health struggle or battle or they need help they're not always thinking logically about, you know, what's going on. So I, I think people generally would want to help you in that situation. Do you have any suggestions for, I guess, a sensitive way that it, the, it can be brought up or asked? Because no one wants to feel like they're exploiting an individual for the trauma or making them pay back what was done for them. So I, I really do relate to the struggle that the people in the positions to ask are in because it, it is a very challenging position, but I'm from the point of view of like, I have to market you. That's what the nonprofits come to you for. And you're asking me to market you without telling anybody or showing anybody, which is more important, right? Is show not tell what the transformation looks like and what somebody could be a part of. And as a nonprofit, that, that's what they're selling to the people who ultimately support them. So back to my question, which is like, what way can they approach this topic that it will go over as well as possible? So I, I guess it depends on the type of organization, right, that you have. For me personally, if I was raising money for OSME, it would be more about me showing the before and after anonymous types of surveys that we take with the girls. Has this actually made a change in how they feel about their bodies and themselves? And I wouldn't really need that level of disclosure. But then there are organizations that help with, I don't know, widows and orphans and much more mental health type challenges, physical health challenges. There are organizations for diseases that are specialized diseases and other things. And, you know, I think it just, the person who is the head of the organization obviously has a very deep connection to it. It it resonated with them for some way. That's why they started it. That's why it, it has meaning to them, why it's their mission. So I think that if they were the person to approach somebody who really had a great kind of a, an outcome from the organization that, you know, it would go, I think it's that idea that if you're really sincere in how you're asking that they're not going, and you can tell them right up front, if you're uncomfortable, I understand, but I just know that your story is a really powerful one and that we can affect change in so many people. And um, if you feel like it's something you can do or you're ready to do, you know, it would really make a difference for the organization, not guilting them, truly, truly asking them and giving them that opportunity. I think it has to be a personalized message. I think that the head of the organization or somebody very high up in it has to be the one to reach out. And like I said, they have to kind of give them that out ability. And it might be that they don't want to use their real name and that, and that's okay too. And maybe they're going to, and maybe they're going to, instead of, you know, maybe using their face in a podcast or a story that they're telling, they're going to be blurred, but you know, it's their kind of comfort level, but people really 
resonate highly. I agree with you with personal stories. You know, whenever I speak, if I bring in stories of things that have happened, it's much more powerful. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? If you can show a powerful image or a powerful picture of what you've done, that's going to exponentially increase your fundraising capabilities. Absolutely. That was amazing advice. Thank you. I just want to put out there, and I I don't have the credentials to say this from a professional standpoint at all, but from a personal standpoint, I think that the obsession with privacy that the Orthodox Jewish community has, besides for the negative effect it has on the nonprofit organizations that are trying to help, just has a negative effect on the community as a whole, because anyone who's struggling will probably say that the hardest part is going through it alone. Whether it's, you know, they have to put on a brave face for the world or pretend that things are fine or, you know, lie to, to people who they would want to open up to because they're afraid of, of the stigma and the shame. And I think that anybody who does overcome their, you know, initial instinct for privacy or any fear they might have of sharing is actually taking a step to end that stigma. And they don't know how many people might watch that and say, wow, you know, that alone just gave me even if they're not in a position to financially support that organization, but just say, I don't feel so alone anymore. Someone else is going through that. And there's such a huge opportunity for the idea of marketing to actually go out there and and change a whole community's way of of thinking. So I just am curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. I I agree with you wholeheartedly. One of the greatest risk factors in the from community for eating disorders, which is a mental health illness, so it can manifest in many different ways. But one of the greatest issues is that we kind of, we do advocate for privacy, not just privacy, but the shame and stigma and asking for help, that you should be able to handle things and take care of things on your own, by yourself, for yourself. Even sometimes, you know, mothers, we model to our kids, you know, we'll have a baby, we'll get right back into everything that we're doing, whether that's having company or, you know, uh, going back to work, our lunches, helping with the, with the homework, the bathing, all the schedules, we just go right back in. And sometimes we don't share with our daughters, like the reality of that struggle. And so we create sometimes this shame and guilt around needing help when that's just a normal expected part of life. And we learn from each other. This is part of that concept of common humanity when we have self-compassion that we're all in the same boat. Sure, we have different struggles, but we all are experiencing struggle and shame and setback and stress. So shame is never something that comes with a positive outcome. I think it's really cathartic for people who are able to share it because they no longer are feeling that shame, right? Um, It's a personal story. They don't have to, but I feel like for many people, as soon as they're able to kind of really verbalize it and share it, it doesn't have to be nationally. Maybe it's just to a trusted person, a therapist, a friend of theirs. It doesn't necessarily have to be nationally, but when they're able to kind of take, use the words and get them out, that's when they have real healing. And the truth of the matter is in an eating disorder, the food, we often think is food is the cause, but food is actually how they're expressing their emotions. They're using it to control their emotions, right? Because they don't know, they don't have the words or sometimes in bulimia, if they had a trauma, they're holding, they want to purge those emotions out. They want to control how they handle it. Oftentimes with eating disorders, what they have to do is give them the tools to have another outlet for, for their emotions and not use it in an unhealthy way to control or revolve around their food and their intake. So this is a challenge that everyone faces. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And and so much of what you're saying, I'm listening and I'm saying, wow, I thought I knew about eating disorders. I didn't really understand any of that. So that in of itself, like if more people could share their stories around that, how much more empathy we could all have as a community to someone who might be going through that 
and not just empathy, but maybe be able to spot the signs, be able to get more involved in prevention as a community. And in general, I find a lot of nonprofits tell me one of their greatest challenges is that people don't really understand what they do and they don't know to come to them for help. And this is such a simple way. You put someone out there to tell their story and the light bulb goes on for anyone who might hear that, like, wow, this is where I can go to help. So the upsides are so many and so so much larger than what seems like such a small thing, which is like, oh, I'm not going to ask the people we help to tell their stories because we have to respect their privacy. And I love how you said there's no positive outcome from shame. I think that every nonprofit should have that on their office walls to kind of perpetuate that they think they're helping. Right. But you have to really turn that idea. So like practically, how can we do that? This is so rooted in this the Orthodox community. Everything, even good things are private, right? You know, people don't tell people if they're having a baby or getting engaged. Like everything is so, so private. And there's so much fear around sharing anything. Like what can we do? So um, part of what we do kind of with shame is number one, the number one thing to alleviate shame is really talking about it. That is the number one thing because the more you hold it in and the more, the more it grows inside of you, it's like an emotion that you hold on to. And then it kind of is like a tornado where it just keeps going around and around and around. So the more you can actually talk about it with somebody, again, it might not be appropriate or comfortable to you to talk about it with everybody. It might not be something you want to publicize to the world, but I think once you realize and you find a person who you trust to talk about it with, then you will be more comfortable to share it with other people once you realize there is no judgment. A lot of times we think there's going to be a lot of judgment around it, and that's just a personal thing that we're going through, but it's not actually what happens. Um, so talking about things actually is one of the most important things. And then how you treat yourself around how you feel about things. We talk a lot about in our workshops the how we cultivate self-compassion. The idea of self-compassion is mindfulness, common humanity and um, self-kindness, how we speak to ourselves, how we um, internalize what happens to us, you know, okay, this happened to me. All right, I get it. I understand, you know, but this happens to everybody. We all struggle with the same things in one way or in, in another way. And so instead of getting caught up in this tornado, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give myself some ideas of how I'm going to get out of it in the future and use it for a positive learning experience. So when we kind of practice self-compassion, it's a very powerful way of reducing stigma and shame. And we do a lot of these exercises and talk a lot about it with the girls, but it's something that can help anybody anywhere they are. And the more you practice it for positive things in your life, the more it's kind of like your brain is trained. Because when we get into a shameful situation, all of a sudden we panic, right? You're just like, oh no, oh no, oh no. But if your brain is already trained to think in a different way, then already you kind of approach it from another avenue when when those things ultimately happen. And they will. They will happen to everybody at some point or another. We all struggle. We all fail. We all stumble. You know, that's just part of humanity. Absolutely. That's, that's amazing. So I'm, I'm curious for, from your perspective, is this something you've ever thought of in terms of the next step of, of your organization and, and, you know, the potential for growth? Do you have any kind of concerns that you might run into these issues of, of privacy, confidentiality, you know, the stigma that surrounds it, that it might work against you when it comes to the growth of your organization? Or do you feel that there's enough tools already out there in the community that it won't be a much of an issue? So. You know, the funny thing is, is that my organization in the prevention of eating disorders doing this, there are a lot of organizations out there that are already trying to help people with eating disorders. Those ones probably will have the hardest time. Where I struggle the most is in people realizing that it's valuable 
to support because prevention works empirically, scientifically, it works. And it is a, really an epidemic. And especially since COVID, the amount of eating disorder cases they've shown have gone up 60%. Wow. The amount of hospitalizations are up astronomically. Um, it, it, eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate for adolescents just behind drug overdoses. It is one of the most deadly diseases that children face. And so when people realize how important it is, I think that's where I'm struggling is getting people to really see how how important it is to support prevention. Because once someone has an eating disorder, it is curable, but it can be harder to cure. It's it's a more long-term struggle that the whole family gets involved in. And it's, it's hard. Um, if we can prevent it, even for a few girls, isn't it worth it? I mean, that, that's, I think, where I'm going to have the biggest struggle. If I personally decide to kind of start another nonprofit, which is in the back of my mind, just support specifically for pe- families of girls or, or boys, boys have it too, with eating disorders, then I do think it would be harder because I would need that very personal touch of stories of somebody that I helped who really needed this extra help, didn't know where to turn to, didn't know what to do. A lot of parents, like I said, don't know what their role is in recovery for their child. They're going to a therapist, a dietitian. Sometimes they're hospitalized. Sometimes, you know, they have um, mental health, physical health professionals. Uh, you know, what are they supposed to be doing at home when they notice their daughter doing things that aren't safe or their son? So I could see that being an issue down the road. So that that does sound like a, there is potential for that, but hopefully some of the work that you're doing will counter that and um, help you along the way. I want to just flag something that you said for anyone who hears me refer to marketing and kind of just kind of glazes over that. Like it's not important. I I do get that feeling from a lot of people in nonprofits. They hear the word marketing, they just kind of like block it out because fundraising is the priority. Marketing is something for brands like Coke and um, Apple. And I just want to point out how untrue that is because what you mentioned about prevention being effective, a lot of that is marketing for an organization to be able to, you know, do prevention at scale, whether it's some kind of advertising campaign or going directly into schools, all of these things take funding. This is expensive for the organization and they have to be able to justify the funding. So it really all comes back into a circle where you hear something like marketing or advertising campaign and you're like, no, that's just an expense. We need to be putting every dollar into programming. Well, what are you calling programming? If you saved five people from falling into the, the the dark hole that is an eating disorder and the funding needed to treat them at that point is so much more vast. And you could have taken the funding as an investment into marketing and prevented some of that. How do you deny that? So it really does come full circle. In, in, and it's I, I think it's important for people to notice because I don't think a lot of people really think of it that way. I agree with you. And I actually appreciate you saying it in that way because you don't think about it as a person who's kind of been doing all the marketing and uh, talking to all the people. Sometimes I'm like, well, I'm a limited human being and there's only so many people I can talk to. And while a lot of people, it resonates with them, they'll say to me, yeah, I'm going to call. We're going to make it happen. And then they they don't call you back. There is no follow-up. This takes time. This takes money. This takes expertise. That's the truth. You just don't want to sound like you're uh, nagging them, right? So, you know, having somebody do that for you, that that is a huge job and that costs money. I mean, it's it's time and energy by a lot of people. So I agree with you in that in that respect, I would have to agree with you that the funding, even going to these conferences, paying for a booth, paying for the travel, going to, you know, food and a board when you go places, all these things cost money and your organization has to foot the bill. So you have to find a way to fund that. Yeah. And that's challenging. Many organizations struggle with the people giving them the money, especially like the big donors. They're very demanding. They want 
the money, they want their money to go directly to, you know, something that will look very dramatic and impactful. And they call it, you know, programming. I want no overhead, no overhead and marketing, advertising, awareness, all that is overhead. And, you know, that's not, that, that doesn't make me feel good. Oh, my money went to overhead. But if you look at where the money could actually do the best work, ultimately, I think that the, it's very clear where it does the most effort. So there, there is some sort of education, level of education that has to be done around like a step after the shame and the stigma that we're dealing with and then go beyond that and say, you know, what are we really focusing on as a community? So right. yeah, no, you're 100% correct. I agree with you because yeah, if you don't get it out, it, it doesn't matter what product you have. If you don't get it to the people who need it, then it's all for naught, right? So people can give me money for the journals or for whatever they want to give me, but if they don't allow me to use it for what I need it for and trust me enough to if they're trusting me to make the programs then I would hope that they would trust me enough to use the money where I need to put the money in order to get them to the girls that you would hope you would really hope, you know, you have the credentials and the experience and you would really hope, but I don't know if that's always the case because it's their money and they, you know, want to be able to call the shots and feel good about themselves. So, you know, that it's definitely a struggle. Um, Even grant writing, you know, they have very specific uses for the grants. Um, and so, and you have to document all that. Getting the grant is only one part of it. So if it's not for that, then, you know, you don't have funds for that. Right. It's, it's definitely a struggle because there's so much good you can do. And then there's just this minor detail of like, well, how are you paying for it all? So right. um, I really appreciate your time. If anybody wants to contact you to hear more about Atsumi or more about your expertise, where could they go? Um, my personal um, website is marcyforta.com, but they can reach, always reach out to me. The name of the organization is Atsmi. The website for Atsmi is Atsmi, A-T-Z-M-I dot org. Or they can email me at marcy, M-A-R-C-Y at Atsmi, A-T-Z-M-I dot org. Uh, those are the best ways to find me. Okay, great. Thank you so much for taking the time. I think this was a really important conversation that I've had on my mind for a long time. So I'm glad we got to do this. Yeah. And I appreciate all your energy and effort into me thinking about things that I really didn't kind of put together. So that's, it was very enlightening for me as well. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode, or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tsevia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com.